Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and welcome to yet another edition, or edition, I guess. Well, it's an addition as well, of Lynn Cullen Live. It's uh, October something or other, 7. And uh, we are joined today uh, by a guest who I was fearful might uh, oversleep because it's 7 a.m. his time, and it's awfully nice of him to browse himself at this early hour to uh, be with us. Dennis, I'm assuming you're there. I'm right here, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Listen, this has become an annual event. I mean, you you spit a you spit one of these Den, uh, Daniel Rinaldi thrillers out uh, about once a year, don't you? Actually, it's more like once every two years, two and a half. I'm a full time therapist in private practice, so I don't have quite <laughs> the amount of time that my some of my mystery writing colleagues do. Uh, but about two and a half years ago was the, I think the last one, Head Wounds. And, and this one just came out, Panic Attack, about two and a half years later. Well, I, you know, this is not necessarily my go-to genre, but ever since I first read one of these books and interviewed you, I've, I've grown to uh, really look forward to each installment. I think my my audience now knows that uh, all your pieces are set, your pieces, your your books are set in Pittsburgh, the your hometown. That's and, right. Um, I do have to tell you, though, uh, Dennis, you know, Pittsburgh has lost easily half its population since uh, you were a kid. Oh, and, I know. Um, yeah, but at the rate you're killing people off here, in your books, <laughs> we're not yeah. going to, I mean, come on, ease, yeah, ease this up one, a little bit. They're, they're, uh, Pittsburghers are dropping like flies in this book, I have to admit. Man, it, it, do you know which book has the highest body count? This one, I got unbelievable. The last two, I think you're getting more bloodthirsty. I don't know. I don't know whether what, what it is. Uh, yeah, I think this one had the biggest body count. Compared to like the first, you know, couple books that had like one murder, you know. So yeah, this. <laughs> right. When you're doing a sniper, you got to knock off a few people, or else he's not going to terrorize, <laughs> the, which is the purpose of the book. So. That is right. So is right. okay, I I just I have to say a panic attack uh, begins at a uh, a college football game at a fictional college just outside of uh, Pittsburgh. And um, the the mascot of the of the team uh, was he a tiger or something? Is 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 That's right. killed the, by a sniper? I, yeah, he. Gets, I just want to say, excuse me. I just want to say, I loved the beginning because I hate those mascots. I would like to see every one of them taken out. Oh my God! You don't want to start a trend here. <laughs> I'm kidding. Can I can I ask my producer? Is it possible to um, uh, raise the audio level a little? I'm having a little bit of because things are quieter on my end than normal. Um, so I'm really um, well. I can see. To, 
too. I, I think sometimes I drift into my therapist voice, which is soothing. No, and, no, I don't uh, think that's what's happening. Well, I just okay. Can't, I'm used to hearing me and everybody else sound a lot louder than it sounds today. And I can't, I don't know how, what to do about that. Oh, maybe it's my phone. Hang on. Um, yeah, that's what it is. I'm sorry. I am such a, are you as, you're not as out of it as I am, are you, about this world? Technology, I'm a total idiot. I'm a total tech. In fact, my son at one point finally said, look, I'm tired of being tech support. So, yeah. Well, what are sons for? What the hell are kids for? People are having kids now for tech support. It's the only way you can get it because it's quicker than waiting online for the guy to come online. So exactly yeah. right. Raise a exactly. kid till three or four, and all of a sudden you have built-in text. <laughs> I know. Oh gosh! So listen, I have often—I don't even know where to go with this. Um, as a writer, though, do you? Is there something cathartic for you in? Having like this godlike power to, de- as you write, to decide who lives, who dies. Well, I think that what's cathartic is the amount of uh, action, suspense, and violence that usually does not accompany the career of a psychotherapist. Um, it, 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 it's you know, in in my my fourth book, Phantom Limb, there's a long session with a patient. The patient goes out the door. She's kidnapped, and my therapist hero is knocked on the head. That hasn't happened to me yet, and I've been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> kidnapped so, out of the waiting room. So I, I think that real cathars, I think writing is ther- secondarily therapeutic anyway, no matter what you write, whether it's a journal or a romance novel. But it also allows me to mine my imagination, which is very important to me. And uh, to sort of live vicariously through my my lead character. Um, So I find it really uh, cathartic, uh, to use your word, and you're right, I think, to write these kinds of thrillers, uh, which are very different from the sort of sedate, stick-in-the-mud person I am. Well, yes, but that means that underneath that sedate, stick-in-the-mud, smooth-talking therapist... There is like uh, somebody with a very dark view of human nature. Well, I have a very dark view of the dark parts of human nature. You know, what Jung called the shadow. We, we all have the shadow in us. I wish we didn't see so much of it exhibited every day in the news, but we do have the shadow in us. And to be a, 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 a civilized, self-reflective person, you try to process and integrate that shadow. I mean, in other words, you could say to yourself, gee... I'd love it if my brother-in-law got hit by a truck. Well, if you're a mystery writer, you can write the brother-in-law getting hit by a truck. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's, that's the only difference, uh, I, I think. Um, I'm one of those people that thinks every time there's like a guy up on a building shooting at people, why isn't there one of those every day? Uh, it's because most of us process and integrate those hostile, uh, rage-filled, incomprehending feelings that we have every day. Life is hard. And the fact that 300 million Americans mostly walk around not killing each other is remarkable. It's a testament to the human spirit, I think. Oh, man. But you have to admit, 
that more and more people seem to be, and I think are, unhinged now and are less emotionally um, intelligent uh, than used to be the case. People are acting out in very violent ways. I would agree. I, the two things I'm, I'm noticing is, number one, the, the lack of critical thinking skills, which yeah. is by the social media. I, I think yeah. I'm a big believer that social media has been one of the worst things to happen to mankind. And uh, I know everyone says, yeah, but, you know, you can go to any library in the world and read a book. Yeah, but that's not what people do. They go to QAnon sites. I mean, so... Mm -hmm. The reality is, I, I think it does feel as though more and more people are aggrieved. More and more people find contemporary life overwhelming and incomprehensible, and they act out. Plus, you know, we're a country where everybody gets guns. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, this just doesn't happen in the UK or other places in Europe unless it's a terrorist thing. Uh, we just have too much ready access to guns. And, um, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in gun control laws, and I, and I wish they were, you know, much stronger and more readily enforced. Yeah, really. Um, you know, you mentioned that you somewhat are living, you know, vicariously through your, your main character, uh, Daniel Rinaldi, who is also a therapist mm -hmm. like you. And what I, I want to just remind my, um, although I, can we back up a little bit? Because I find your personal story every bit as fascinating as some of the books you've written. I mean, the fact that, the, just the arc that, that your professional life uh, took. It is an unusual fact, Yeah, it, it's an unusual story. And I'm, I don't know if you're sick of telling it. No one's ever sick of talking about themselves. So would you just, for of anybody course. who has, okay, thank yeah, you. For those gazillions of people who have no idea who you're talking to. <laughs> That's uh, right. There's no reason they should. Um, no, I, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, went to Pitt, and uh, came out here uh, to Hollywood in, with my first wife and, and got into show business. I, uh, I was very lucky. I did very, very well. And I was a writer on Welcome Back, Cotter. I wrote the first episode of Love Boat. I did a lot of stuff. And then I went into movies. And I guess I've done a couple movies. The one that's probably the most known is My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole. Um, and then after about you, seven Well, wait, 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 wait. You said you did it. What did you do? You wrote it. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that was obvious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I no, tell I, you, I, I happened I, to see it again the other, maybe a few weeks ago. Oh. And it is literally one of my favorite movies. I have seen it, I don't know, maybe five, six times. And every time I see it, I just love it. I laugh and I laugh and I laugh and I laugh. And it, I just think it's, it's wonderful. My favorite year is one of my favorite movies and I'm not kissing your behind. I mean that. I, I do appreciate that. A lot of people like the movie a lot. To be honest with you, I think whatever merits the film has are all due to Peter O'Toole. Uh, he, <laughs> I wrote this wonderful movie for him. And yeah. nobody wanted him, by the way. Uh, it, but it, it was, uh, to me, his performance makes that movie. 
Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of his work in that film, and I, and I think it elevates the film enormously. Um, oh, he's but thanks just, for that. Yeah, but all the all the side, all the other act, it's just it is wacky, wonderful, and ultimately moving. I mean, it's just it's really, really. And so you quit doing that when you were so good at it. What happened? Well, a lot happened. My first marriage ended. I went into therapy, and I fell in love with the process as a as a patient in therapy. And so I just started taking some psychology courses, graduate courses, because I thought, well, as a writer, it couldn't hurt me to take some of these courses. So I started taking them at night, and I started volunteering at a low-fee family clinic. And then a friend of mine asked me to come and work at a psychiatric hospital, and the next thing I knew, I was getting close to having enough credits that I could actually graduate. And so uh, I kept writing. I was still writing and doing, you know, pilots and rewrites on movies and stuff. But I was accumulating uh, enough uh, uh, credits that I could actually get a degree. And I began my internship. And the whole thing happened at night. It was like Batman. I was like Bruce Wayne during the day. And at night, I was taking classes and, and working at these hospitals and clinics. No one in show business knew I was doing this. This was totally clandestine. And it didn't occur to me till after, you know, six and a half years of clinical work that I wanted to actually change my life, that I, that I did want to become a therapist. I had been one in, as an intern for, you know, two and a half of those six years. And I thought, I really love working with, with patients. And uh, I had a kind of road to Damascus experience. I was sitting with a producer on Sunset Boulevard at a restaurant whose name just went out of my head, but I used to know it. It's not there anymore. And he was pitching me a movie he wanted me to write. And the whole time at lunch, I'm looking at my watch because I'm late to go down to this psychiatric hospital and lead uh, group therapy with a group of schizophrenics. And so Jeez. I leave driving down La Cienica like a lunatic, and I'm thinking, I couldn't wait to get out of that lunch and get down to where I'm going. And I knew at that moment I was going to change my life. And I did. It's amazing, because there's so few people that, like, how old were you in this? Are you late 30s or early 40s, or what are you there? I think I was about 39, 39. Okay, okay, okay. Because I'm 70 That's... now, and I've been in practice almost 30 years. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I started young. I was a writer on Welcome Back, Cotter at 24. So, you know, I, I was in the business a long time um, because I had been very, very lucky to break in when I did. Um, and it was when I, I like to say w- when show business was fun. Um, and and I, I, I about 39, I guess it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that sad, though? I have to tell you what you just said. That you were very lucky you were able to when, you know, when the business was fun. I could say the same about the business I spent time in, television. Uh, Why all these industries stopped being fun and started being more, um, it became that ladder that used to be there where somebody could just, uh, you know, come out of pit and go to California and jump right in. That just doesn't, those doors aren't open like they used to be. And the business 
is uglier and uglier and uglier. Tell me I'm wrong. You're right. I mean, you know, most, uh, as, you, as you know, my practice specializes in creative issues. And so 90% of my patients are writers and directors in show business. And uh, can tell from 30 years of working with them how the business has changed. It's primarily, you know, I don't want to get in the weeds here, but it's primarily due to vertical integration where everything's become so corporate. And that that um, it, it's hard to explain it exactly, but it's become more of a business. It was a business in the 70s when I was in show business, but it was a business run by lunatics. And those were, lunatics were great. They were nuts. because they're creative. Those are creative people. It's run now by, by, by bean, bean counters. Essentially, it's run by bean counters, to be honest with That's you. That's right. And, uh, they take uh, the heart out of it. Oh, yeah. And so it's amazing when any – it's funny. We have so many – you know, when I was in the business, there were three channels. <laughs> there were three networks. Now yeah. there's 500 million ways to view something, but right. very hard to get something good on the air uh, because of uh, – they, they do all these testings and they have all these algorithms, and it's all very corporate. And so um, – uh, plus, the money's so big, people get really nervous, you know. So I, I, I think that's it. I don't think people in show business are evil, the people higher up. I just think they're so corporate and so money-minded, that's all they can see. Uh, and, and so the experience for my creative patients, um, they're still very grateful they get to be in the business, which is terrific, um, because they get to explore their own creativity. But you also get noted to death. I mean, when, when I was uh, on, for example, Welcome Back, Cotter, unless you use swear words, you never heard from the network. You just wrote them and shot them, and on the air they went. <laughs> and if you have an idea for an episode, let's say you're doing an episode of, I don't know, Big Bang Theory, you have to get the network to approve the outline of your episode. That's incomprehensible to me. And yeah. also, when I was in the business, your agent, you wrote something and your agent tried to sell it. Now, because agents and managers are often co-producers, which I think is a conflict of interest, they give you notes or even say, we don't like this script, so we're not going out with it. I've never heard of such a thing. So I have, didn't know that. My God. We have more gatekeepers now than ever before. Now well, my writing patients pitch an idea to their agent, and their agent goes, nah, that's not what they're buying now. That's incomprehensible to me. My agent would never oh, say that to me in wow. those days. So it's a real different time. I don't want to get into the weeds for people. Okay, well, I, well yeah, yeah, but you know what? It, it's unbelievable because it suppresses the creative spirit. It, it just, I mean, it's just, ah, capitalism. I'm telling you, never mind. I mean, okay. I mean, I'm going to go off on a, a lunatic rant in a second. Let's get back to this book, which I read in two days because I couldn't put it down. Oh, I was really Lynn, I was, no, I didn't. That. I, I'm hearing I was, that a lot. People are saying, geez, I could not stop reading this thing. Yeah, I couldn't figure out, you know, I, I'm not good at figuring out who done it. And, you know, you're you're screwing around with our heads and, and, and all this stuff. But I, I, I think I, I I figured this one out. A, no, I didn't. I didn't come to think of it. Not at all. Totally blindsided. 
Um, Panic Attack is the name of the book. It is out, right? What's the best way for people to get this thing? Well, you can get it anywhere. I mean, you can get it at your favorite bookstore. You can order it that way. Of course, you can go through uh, Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble places that sell books. But I prefer people like, for example, in Pittsburgh, I say go to the Mystery Lovers Bookstore in Oakmont. Uh, here, here, uh, here in, in Pittsburgh, and and right. and get it. I, I'm a big believer in supporting independent bookstores. And exactly. I did a, a virtual launch of the book a couple of weeks ago at Mystery Lovers Bookshop. It was a weird experience because I've launched every one of my Daniel Rinaldi books from the Mystery Lovers Bookshop. But it was always in person, and this was weird to do it virtually. Um, it really was. And not have... as satisfying. Not oh, as no, because look at people coming up, and they you chit-chat with them, and they talk about the book, or they talk about where they grew up in Pittsburgh, and then I signed the book. And, you know, that kind of connection with a, a local reader means everything to me. And I'm very pleased because I have a lot of readers in Pittsburgh because uh, – Pittsburgh's such an important setting. It's almost like a character in the book, as far as I'm concerned. The funny thing is, though, my my Pittsburgh readers, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you before, but, you know, I hear from them a lot, but they rarely say anything about the characters or the plot. What they mostly do is, hey, you have Daniel making a left turn on Fifth Avenue, and you can't do... I mostly get chided for the the fact that I get something wrong. I haven't lived in Pittsburgh. 40 years. And so I I, know. I usually call my Pittsburgh friends and go, look, is the Penn Hotel still there? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. And I, I, I even remember noting a few books back. That's impossible. Yeah. Well, you no, you're the one there. That's a- you schooled me on something very important. I have something happening in a bar in Wilkinsburg. And you said to me, you know, Wilkinsburg's a dry area. And I thought, no, I didn't. It never occurred to me that any place in Pittsburgh you couldn't get yeah. a beer. It just yeah. Didn't. Well, there there are a number. I think uh, I think uh, Edgewood is too. I think no. Wow, isn't it? Maybe I should yeah. Google from now on. Uh, you know, what are the dry areas in Pittsburgh? Well, well, it's okay. These are, these are not, but it's right. If you're a Pittsburgher, it it takes you out of the story for a second. You think, wait a minute, that can't be. But this this story, panic attack, um, deals with um, an issue that certainly uh, we talk about a lot on this show when we're talking about the horrors of. Uh, of current politics. And um, I'm not giving anything away, am I, by saying that the issue of uh, domestic terrorism uh, from the right uh, figures in this book. Yeah, the thing that I, I did with this book that is kind of different, first of all, I'd never done anything so culturally relevant. I mean, my books are relevant in the sense I like to talk about the state of the mental health industry and stuff like that, and try to be helpful in terms of psychological conditions so I can help people understand them. I mean, that's why the book titles are like Night Terrors or Phantom Limb. These are psychological conditions that people have, and then I weave them into the story. In, In this case, I did something unusual where, 
you think the thing is solved because around two-thirds of the way through the book, we get the sniper. But that's mm-hmm. when the mystery really begins. And everything right. we thought for the first two-thirds of the book is turned on its head. And uh, I, that's what I'm pleased about. And it's a real jump. But I've been hearing very people going like, wow. And almost never in genre fiction do you address issues like this. I wanted to ask you, speaking of genre, and I said this is not, you know, I don't do murder mysteries very often. First of all, I have trouble following them. I, I just, I get so, I feel so stupid when I, I read them. What is the exact genre that this fits into? Because I mean, there's it's mysteries, procedurals, police, I, I don't understand all the possible genres. Well, the genres are blur a little bit, but in this case, I always call them mystery thrillers, but mostly my books are thrillers. Uh, There's cozy mysteries, which are like the Agatha Christie. There's police procedurals like uh, 87th Precinct, you know, something like Mm -hmm. if you were analogous in television, it would be like a law and order or something. And, And there are thrillers, and there are different types of thrillers. I mean, this is a crime thriller. Whereas yeah. there's also political thrillers. There's also spy thrillers. You know what I mean? So yep. genre itself encompasses lots of different kinds uh, of um, mystery, suspense. You can even just say the whole genre is about mystery and suspense, because even if you're a political thriller, you're, you're, you're like that, you know. Um, plus, there's legal thrillers, you know, like all the presumed innocent and all those Scott Turow kinds of books or John Grisham books, those are considered thrillers too, but they take place in the arena of the law. So uh, it's a very broad-based genre. And the only it's a very big genre in publishing. The only one bigger is romance. Romance novels are the number one, and mystery suspense novels are number two in terms of fictional genres um, uh, that, that readers respond to. What do you read when you want to just sit and read a book? You know, it's funny. I only read certain types of uh, uh, mystery writers. Uh, I have a number of of real favorites. But actually, I like nonfiction. Uh, I like uh, history, um, philosophy, uh, history of science. You know, my idea of of, uh, a, a great time uh, is reading right now. I'm reading at the Existentialist Cafe, which is a very breezy look at all those crazy existentialists, Sartre and uh, Simone de, de, Bar- uh, de Beauvoir and de Beauvoir, uh, yeah, uh, and Camus. Oh, My friends, yeah, it's terrible. All, it's all, you know, they're all, all the crazy. French is terrible. Yeah, See, mo- French yeah, is were- terrible. And you know, my English isn't that much better, but my French. Is- <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's the I, R. I, you can't do the R. That's what I can't do. Well, it, all it's I the know weird is I, R. I took four years of Spanish, and I know that La Playa means beach. That's it. After four years, I remember in high school. I don't know if you had this experience. <laughs> Spanish in high school, and after three uh, uh, semesters of Spanish, they put us in the language lab. They put the earphones yeah. on, and they had two people talking in Spanish. And I didn't understand right. word. It was going so fast, like I couldn't follow any of it. So I have. No I still f- remember. Yeah, I, I still remember Dennis from my f- high school French lab, the back and forth. Um, 
Mine was French. Où est la bibliothèque? That was Où est la bibliothèque? Where is the library? Yeah. Say tout droit. Say tout droit. Tu y vas tout suite. It's right there. Do you want to go now? And there was another one. Un pneu crevé. C'est facile à réparer. Yeah, I'm not, but anyone who speaks French is like dying here. A flat tire? That's easy to fix. Wow. I'm very impressed. You're very continental or intercontinental. Yes. Oh, dear. Okay. Whatever. I mean, and, and obviously would never speak French in front of a French person because, first of all, I can't, and and I'm slaughtering their language. I want to, just to get, to get back to your to your book, Panic Attack, ladies and gentlemen, Poison Pen Press. Uh, you can order it in the usual lazy kind of a way, but uh, Dennison, I think you should go to uh, Mystery Lovers Bookstore or order it from them or call any independent bookstore and order it from them. Dalton Rich, Jeff Bezos. Okay? Thank you. <laughs> I know Jeff needs the money. So, uh... yeah, oh, yeah, he's dying for it. So... <laughs> Do you believe that William Shatner's going up in his rocket next week? Well, it doesn't surprise me uh, because I'm at the place at my age where almost nothing surprises me. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm still thrown by what people are willing to do to each other. That kind of scares me still. But no, if you told me William Shatner was going to run for president, I mean, I, I, who knows? Oh, right? Yeah. Everything up in the air. Uh, hey, it, listen, it, you know what? You know what? This country elected Donald F. and Trump, okay? That's why nothing is surprising anymore. No, I know. My my crystal ball broke on November 2016. Yeah, the yeah. The day he was elected is when I realized, man, am I out of touch with my fellow citizens. <laughs> and so, but, you know, I'm out here in California, the land of the libtards, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So it, you know, what are you going to do? It, it There's nothing... <clears throat> Everything I, that it could possibly be said about Donald Trump has already been said by funnier and smarter people than me. So, um, what is his personality disorder? Is other than extreme narcissism? Is that it? It's just a well, flat out you lunatic know, narcissist. Yeah, uh, uh, sort of a pet peeve. I, I have a problem with therapists. Uh, uh-huh. Dosing someone they've never met. You know, you see someone on CNN going, well, here's the thing with uh, this guy. He's a schizophrenic or he's a, a grandiose narcissist with mixed emotional features. And I'm there. He's never met that person. So I, I'm a little leery. I would say since 900 of my colleagues have already said so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would. He, he's probably a malignant narcissist. But. Yeah. The lack of remorse he feels moves a little bit into the sociopathy category. Not totally, but there's. I have a concern that he doesn't literally seem to care about the impact of anything he says or does on others. No, he doesn't. He does obviously doesn't. So that lack so that's of remorse, sociopathic. yeah, of, of foresight as to well, if I say this, that could start that. Or if this happened, I should feel bad. When After Charlottesville, when he said there's very fine people on both sides, I threw up my hands and said, we're done. 
that that that's sort of like uh, you check that box off in terms of uh, of relatively un, un, having any kind of understanding of what's happening in the country. And all he wants to do and all of his supporters in the GOP to this day want to do is massage their base. And uh, the only thing I can think of is most of their base is unvaccinated, so they may not be around to vote for them in another two years. So at, uh, who knows? Well, we can all hope. No, I'm being horrible there. But listen, here's what I want to do. I want to I, – I don't know that I've ever done this before. I'm going to read the last two paragraphs of your book out loud. Well, feel free. Okay. Now, normally you would say, wait a minute. You can't do that. I'm going to read it. I don't want to hear the last two paragraphs. But, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, because the last two paragraphs are just my hero ruminating. They have nothing to do with solving the problem or the mystery. But it also, it shows, uh, yeah, just ruminating. And as I said, this has to do with, you know, the darker side of our country's, uh, well, racism and, and, and political turmoil and domestic terrorism, which is what the book has dealt with. Then it's all over and his, uh, your beleaguered alter ego, Daniel Rinaldi, having escaped death 5,000 more times. Yeah. And I, I also said you has has quaffed easily uh three gallons of black coffee and when and uh what is it bourbon whiskey uh jack daniels yeah he likes whiskey. jack daniels yeah uh, my guy is i think an incipient alcoholic if he isn't one yeah. already but uh, yeah. he's a definitely gallons of coffee in the morning and as much alcohol as he can take in the evening so he's not a role model for anyone, but anyone who's ever known a therapist, we're not role models for people either. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, okay. my goodness. Here, no, really, it's true. The most screwed up people I know are therapists. Well, I don't argue with you. Okay. This is the, this is the end of panic attack, ladies and gentlemen. And it's uh, this is the voice of uh, the the protagonist, Daniel Rinaldi. Finally, as night fell, I was once again on my back deck, whiskey in hand, and watching the three rivers. Their ceaseless flow, the way they merged at the point, reminded me that nature's quiet determination to endure was a good lesson for the rest of us. That like these broad rivers, we should embrace the simple, undeniable fact of our own merging. Of course, that requires justice, compassion, and hope, none of which seem to be in ample supply nowadays. But as a therapist, citizen, and human being, I have to believe there's enough of each to sustain us, even to prevail. And all evidence to the contrary, I do. Well, that's all lovely. I wish I felt that fullness that you suggest, but I think all evidence to the contrary, we don't, I have to tell you. (laughs) We have good days and bad days. Yeah, Um, oh God. I, I, I just try.
try to hang on to a certain amount of what I call cautious optimism. And it's based on the fact that, as I said, I've read lots of history and nonfiction, uh, uh, you know, social psychology stuff. Almost every generation believes this is the one where we're the end of days, where we're just going to fall apart and everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And it feels pretty much that way. And we've never had the accompaniment of social media fueling it. But, you know, it's there's an ancient Greek. I forget who it was. I want to say uh, Plato, but it wasn't Plato. Someone said was talking about the state of things in, in Rome. I'm sorry, in Greece. And he said, yeah, it's criminals everywhere. Young people don't listen to their parents and everybody's <laughs> writing a book. And I thought, <laughs> no, 500 years ago. And I love everybody's writing a book. <laughs> that can't be. And yeah. Really? Okay. So I, um, yeah, I agree. But you know, never before was there social media, as you say, and never before was there the climate crisis. So yeah. anyone who thinks we're nearing some kind of end can't be called, uh, I don't think, a chicken little or a, you know, a paranoid. Uh, no, it's a reasonable thing to no, I try to we're heading. offer a kind of reasonable because remember what happens right before that is he has to witness a Nazi salute. So That's I right. needed to pull my readers back from the <sighs> colley of that parag- uh, chapter before, which I found. Hey, very one of the things, one of the things that just made me think that some of the people who turned out to be like the guy who does the Nazi salute, so, some of the characters who then turn on us as the reader uh, who aren't what they appeared to be. Um, I think that's the most frightening thing in the book, that people who hold positions of power, people who are seemingly wonderful people, good people, look like choir boys, you know, do nice things, are no one would, you know, think they were bad, turn out to be like evil, horrible, airy. Well, often the case. that That's not always the case, I hasten to say, but it's often the case. Um, one of the things that throughout all the Daniel Rinaldi books is a kind of skepticism about authority figures, whether they're authority figures in government, uh, the police, or even in the clinical world. I mean, I'm pretty tough on the mental health profession <laughs> as a member of. Um, so there's a certain skepticism that Daniel Rinaldi has, uh, which is one of the reasons he's such a maverick in his profession and in his stories, I think. Um, you know, so so he has, I think, uh, an axe to grind anyway, because as as you r- remember, his he and his wife were mugged Years and years before the series starts, his wife was killed. He survived. And so one of the things Daniel operates on is survivor guilt. And, you know, as he says at one point, uh, you know, I got this unearned luck to survive. I've been trying to earn it ever since. And that's why he has such a sense of mission toward his patients. And so he's struggling with his own demons. And as I said, I, I, I think he's an alcoholic. I'm not quite sure. I'm not ready to go quite across that line yet, but he sure has all the the symptoms. 
And so uh, that wedded with his sort of anti-authority quality uh, makes him a very uh, edgy uh, character, but he's a very alive character. And I like that about him. He's proactive. He's alive. He's opinionated. Uh, I think he's a little quick to anger. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, but again, you know, when you're a therapist, you're Mr. Nice Guy. You know, you're a snowflake. You're a humanist. You know, you, you process or try to tolerate within yourself all your own aggression. And so, like many of my colleagues, you know, at the end of a day dealing with patients and being Mr. Humanist, you want to see a movie that has a lot of body bags in it. You know, so it's like, get me the most violent action movie. (laughs) Well, there, we're back to it, I'm telling you. But we'll go easy on the bodies because Pittsburgh is being depopulated by you. Well, I know. I'm not helping. On the other hand, I think Pittsburgh is made to be a very interesting character. I've had many people out here tell me, you know, I never, now I kind of want to go visit Pittsburgh. (laughs) great good good well Dennis as usual this has just been a delight and um, I thank you for God rousing yourself so early uh, to to be able to do this thank you well you you. know my first patient my my day starts at 8 a.m. so it's not that early it was just getting up an hour earlier and quaffing some coffee as you would say anyway thank you so much for having me on Lynn I hope your listeners Check out Panic Attack. It's the sixth book in the uh, Daniel Rinaldi series. Uh, you can also learn about me at my website, the cleverly named DennisPalumbo.com. And uh, <laughs> things or, or these just go out into the air and are never heard from again. Uh, whatever. I got to tell you, you if you want some escape into a different kind of terror and horror, this is the way to go. Panic Attack. Seriously. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much, Dennis. All right. My, Talk to you again. My best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care now. <laughs> yes, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So, guys, there. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a quick read. I mean, you just, what, what? Page turner. Page turner. Uh I want to thank Ruth for reminding me to uh, remind you that uh, a show that I've always promoted is happening tonight and it's virtual. So you can go. Actually, this might mean more of you might go than ever before. It's called Off the Record. It is a musical uh, parody review of uh, the local news um, that's put together by uh, uh, folks from uh, the Post-Gazette and uh, a lot of alumni now of the Post-Gazette and also the Screen Actors Guild here, SAG and AFTRA uh, and all of those good uh, unions uh, come together and they put this thing on and it benefits the Pittsburgh Food Bank. And over the years, my gosh, I think they've raised uh, over $600,000 uh, for the food bank. And it's it's funny. It's wonderful. This year, it's called Let's Do Shots. And it's obviously pandemic-based, but always funny. And uh, it is worth tuning in just to see Ken Rice 
the anchor from KDKA, uh, do the uh, introduction. He's 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 worth the price of admission, and there is no price of admission. Okay, so you can go. It's on YouTube tonight, off the record. YouTube also they have a Facebook uh, page where I think it'll be available off the record. Give yourself a treat. I think it's eight o'clock, right? When I was going, yes, it's at eight o'clock. I'm going to be watching it. Of course, if you want to give the food bank a little money because you're watching it, that would be a very nice thing to do. And uh, I have been part of this in the past. Uh, I note that Sally Wigan, my friend, is going to be doing a, uh, I guess, somewhat of a uh, a testimonial to our dear friend, uh, Joanne Rogers, who uh, left us this year. Uh, but it's going to be good. I think Mike Lang's making an appearance. I'm not sure what other stuff, but it's for those of you who like news oriented, who like music, who like to laugh. You can't do better. I don't know what you're thinking of watching tonight, but how about that? Okay. Off the record. And Ruth, thank you for reminding me. Uh, what else do I have? I just want to say this about Jeopardy. I miss it. I miss Jeopardy. I can't watch it anymore. Can you guys, you know, and, and I, I went to see, to their website to see, I mean, is there a lot of their complaints? For those of you who don't know, the, the same guy has been on now for, uh, I don't know, endless. We're into our second month with, one guy winning every show, and that's happened before, obviously. The famous Ken Jennings, the winningest guy ever on Jeopardy, was there for, you know, much longer. And I imagine back then it got to the point where you wanted somebody to knock him off. But this, it takes the game away. You know, people don't tune in to watch one guy who we don't even know, who's now already a millionaire. He's won over a million dollars. And this guy is so good at this game. It's not like he's a bad person, but I want him gone. He doesn't just win. He obliterates the other two contestants who simply cease to be part of the show. He wins like, you know, he's got... Forty thousand uh, dollars in a show, and they've got like a hundred. I mean, so it's it's there's no contest. I'm sorry, I'm ranting. It just I can't take it anymore. And I would think Jeopardy would want to get the show back. And then on top of it, Alex Trebek is dead, and this Mayim Bialik is the is playing his role. And I'm not into the you know, Mayim Matt, that's the guy's name show. I'm sick of it. I tune in just to see, is he still there? He's there. He's there. God. Please. Stop. I enjoy that show. That show's part of my little routine. And it's been taken away. <laughs> Thank you.
thinking we could have a Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan moment. Could somebody like kneecap him and just get him out of there? All right. I guess you love the show today. Thank you. Gigi says, I love it when he's on. I just ordered the book from a local bookshop. Good. Good. I'm glad. And Ed says, great show today. Thank you. Isn't that a relief? Yeah. Ah. Really? The funniest story I saw today. Well, it wasn't funny, but um, where was it? I, um, as I was perusing uh my my news sources uh i'll figure out where i got it i got too many sources here uh i can't, this was in the post gazette today and it was in the local section and and Edie amin's name was in it i thought Edie amin you know the former bloodthirsty strong man of uganda Idi Amin is in a headline in local Pittsburgh news. How the hell does that happen? But that wasn't the funniest part. So here's the headline. I lost it. I can't I'm going to, I, I, okay, here. Here's the headline. Feds deny relative of Idi Amin ability to travel, cite flight risk. Okay, so I'm thinking, what's this doing in local news? And then it turns out that Idi Amin's relative is a guy named Ryan Gustafson. How does Edie Amin have a relative named Ryan Gustafson? Well, I know. People get around and it's like just because somebody's name is uh, Goldberg doesn't mean they're Jewish anymore. I mean, so Edie Amin could well have a relative who sounds like he comes from Minnesota. Ryan Gustafson. And I... I didn't even, after a while, the story, my eyes were rolling around in my head. This Ryan Gustafson uh, is, like, um, in big trouble with the feds because uh, he's been part of some counterfeiting operation. He's 34 years old. He was sentenced to six years in federal prison for, you know, manufacturing counterfeit money. And I guess he ended up getting caught uh, because uh, one of his fake bills uh, was p- attempted to be passed at a Pittsburgh coffee shop. And um, I don't understand. He's out of prison for some reason on compassionate release grounds. I have no idea why. And it turns out he married Idi Amin's granddaughter. So that's how he's a relative. <laughs> Edie Amin, the worst of the worst. And, you know, if you read on further, um, it says here he owes more than $230,000 in restitution to whom I'm not sure, probably the government. And he wants to go back to 
Africa to see Edie's, um, Edie Amin's granddaughter, his wife. And they don't want him to go because they think he ain't coming back. And I'd probably agree. How does a guy named Ryan Gustafson end up marrying the bloodthirsty lunatic, now dead, Edie Amin's granddaughter? Well, it said he was a a Christian missionary. The counterfeiter was a Christian missionary. He's been indicted twice in Pittsburgh. He was initially arrested in Uganda. I don't know. Anyway, the idea that Idi Amin's uh, grandson-in-law is uh, Ryan Gustafson, a counterfeiter uh, who got caught in Pittsburgh, is just strikes me as very funny. Funny, funny. Uh, what else? Uh, the um, federal judge blocked the Texas abortion law, among other things. He said this about it. This judge is Robert Pittman. He said the, the law was an unprecedented and aggressive scheme to deprive citizens of a significant and well-established constitutional right. Uh, Yeah. And then he said, this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. Well, so that's all good. But the, the problem is here, of course, is the way our system works is now Texas, of course, will kick this appeal it, kick it up to a federal appeals court. And the court that Texas always appeals to is a court that always happily signs off on everything the Texas legislature does. So uh, don't start celebrating. This is going that this is going to be reinstituted. Uh, Maybe unless this court finally, I mean, you have no there is no way this is not unconstitutional on its face, right? Another little thing, just sort of getting things all. Uh, what's the word? What's the word? I'm uh, I can't think. Uh, when uh, it turns out there was a school shooting uh, yesterday, not our usual kind. This was student on student, I guess. Uh, uh, which strikes all of us, of course, is a little less terrifying than some crazed being coming into the school and shooting everybody up. But uh, it occurred to me that schools have been so much in the news uh, by virtue of reopening as a result of, uh, you know, the pandemic stuff and, uh, and uh, the mask mandates creating violence of uh, in for school boards and, and some schools. And it occurred to me that I, I, I bet there is zero overlap between the folks who are going ballistic about kids being forced to wear masks in school 
and the people who want guns out of our schools, the threat of gun violence out of our schools. If all these people who get so exercised about a kid having to wear some cloth on her face while in school to protect herself and others, these are not the same people who are out there protesting guns. The extraordinary availability, prevalence of guns. Are they? It's odd what can uh, get people riled up huh? for their poor children. See the poor pharmacist who is this was who is you know in his role as a pharmacist he's been giving vaccine shots to people who come into his store. His brother, an anti-vaxxer, killed him. Killed him because he wanted to save all the poor people that his brother was inoculating with this terrible vaccine. Um, I don't know. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And just one more little thing to leave you uh, with a little nervousness. Front page, New York Times, today. Three critical battleground states. They are Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. are all facing what are considered absolutely crucial governor races next year. Why? Because all three of those states, ours included, have overwhelming Republican-dominated legislatures. And all three of those states' legislatures, because they're Republican-dominated, have been going nuts trying to pass all kinds of bills to prevent people from easily getting to vote. They have also created these totally bullshit reviews of the 2020 election, the only thing that has stood in between what they will do, what they want to do, is that all these states have three Democratic governors. Tom Wolf here, Whitmer in Michigan, and Evers Evers, I think he pronounces it, in Wisconsin. Now, Evers and Whitmer are up for re-election. Wolf is term limited. So all three of those governor's spots are up. Even one going to Republicans could create the very, very reality are hoping for in 2020.
four. If Republicans gain full control over, let's say, the worst case scenario, over these three key states next year, and two years later, because they'll be busily passing all this election and voting uh, suppression stuff, and then next year, interfere or overturn the outcome of the 24 presidential race. This is the fear. And I don't think any of us believe anymore that they wouldn't do it. They're gearing up to do it quite openly. The Wisconsin governor, Evers, says, I would never have guessed that my job as governor when I ran a couple of years ago was going to be mainly about making sure that our democracy is still intact. It's frightening. And then I'm gonna leave you with just this. It wouldn't take much to swing the elections in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Listen to this. Four of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin have been decided by fewer than 23,000 votes. And then in these three states, let's bring back Michigan and Pennsylvania, other than Barack Obama, no presidential nominee has won more than 51% of the vote in any of these states. 1996. That's how tight it is. So as you watch Republicans doing what they're busily doing, it's not there's they are trying to undermine and set the table to ensure that Donald Trump returns or whoever they put up in his stead returns. And they'll do it even if they have to do the kinds of things that Pence didn't do. They've, they're going to be sure that they're totally well-armed heading in. It's war. For our democracy. That's how important this Pennsylvania governor's race is, folks, folks, folks. Know it. Understand that. Okay? That's it for me. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'll talk at you again Monday. Have a good one. And watch off the record tonight, 8 o'clock, Facebook or YouTube. Thank you. Bye-bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.